I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Francis Jones. Hello, Francis, and welcome to the podcast. Um, Now, to start off with, um, what kind of a scientist are you? Because it seems like uh, you've done everything in Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perhaps not everything. My current focus is on geoscience education in the post-secondary setting. And um, the work I do is um, essentially developing approaches that will improve the success and efficiency of uh, students learning about climate change, learning about how Earth works, learning about geology and geophysics. And I do that by working with professors uh, as well as building materials uh, and um, teaching strategies. That's cool. (laughs) And what are you right now? What am I right now? Formerly at UBC, I'm um, hired as a lecturer, which is a faculty member at the bottom of the rung. Normally, a lecturer is a full-time teacher. Um, My role is in teaching um, development and teaching support. And so um, also I've been here for on the order of 25 to 30 years. And um, so I'm I'm one step up from being um, hired as a a contractor or as as a short-term teaching role. And uh, what did you go to school for? Ah, so um, after high school, I took a, um, a, a electrical engineering degree at McGill. Um, I worked in the electrical engineering as a student and in the year following. But I, I then worked in the oil industry um, in a job that hires from electrical engineers because it's a field position that involves using instruments to um, measure the properties of the materials down the oil wells. And they like engineers because they can fix the equipment. <laughs> um, so I worked in the oil patch for um, for two years and then went back to school to do a master's in geophysics with a specialization in glaciology and instrumentation. Which uh, oil patch was that? So I worked in Alberta um, for a smaller company. Schlumberger is a company that does this around the world. And back in the early 80s, there was a, a number of other companies that did the same job. So I worked out of Lloydminster, which is a small town on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan, for two years. Now, it sounds like your schooling was very different than the work that you do right now. Uh, so how does it contribute to, to your work, or, or does it contribute? Absolutely, it does. Um, my, my pathway to where I am now... Um, you know, I'm, I'm near to retirement, so I've been around a while, but the pathway has touched on many of the aspects of being a, an earth scientist. Um, the electrical engineering serves as a really useful background because much of what earth scientists do involves either observing the earth um, or measuring aspects of it. And that measurement piece is, is done with electronics um, and, and the results are analyzed using computing techniques. And guess what? That's what engineers learn. Um, 
bridging into a geophysics degree, uh, a graduate degree, required one year of um, courses uh, to build up my background in the geosciences, the geology, uh, the geophysics, um, the way Earth's uh, systems work. That was the part that was missing in my undergrad, but it only took one year to bridge that gap to then embark on a, on a two-year master's um, program at UBC. And uh, what intrigued you about earth sciences? Why did you want to go into the earth sciences? Well, the first jobs I had as an electrical engineer were in factories. Uh, they were very interesting. It involved um, quality control and um, um, working with engineers who were building really interesting equipment. Uh, in my case, it was um, mostly navigation equipment before the days of GPS. But um, the, the factory life didn't appeal. Um, I had had, uh, as an undergraduate, my hobbies and interests were outdoors. I did quite a bit of skiing and climbing in, the, in, the, um, uh, in, the, in Quebec. And uh, after taking a year, or I, I should say four months um, off as, uh, uh, to travel, um, I realized that um, there were opportunities to combine technical capability with um, either working with or studying um, the earth. And so my days in the oil patch were an opportunity to earn money as quickly as possible in order to bridge into a graduate program that would combine my background in engineering with studies of how the earth works. Excellent. Is there a lot of good climbing in Quebec? Well, there is. Um, north of uh, north of the river, north of the St. Lawrence, is the, Lauren, uh, the, the, the Laurentian Mountains. This is, these are old, uh, hard uh, Canadian shield rocks. And yes, there's, um, there, are, uh, there are quite big cliffs up towards Quebec. Um, within a couple of hours of Montreal, there are, there are um, crags, what the Brit British would call crags. Um, you know, you do have to go elsewhere for the big mountains, but it was kind of rock climbing and crag climbing that was key. And the skiing, of course, is great. Cross-country skiing is great. Right, right. I guess not so much downhill. <laughs> now you've done, as I said, you've worked all over the department, uh, all over the field. Um, at the beginning of COVID, you were even directing the museum. Uh, so thanks for keeping us on track. Um, what project are you most proud of? Well, um, so I've, I, I, I did a master's um, in the early 80s in this department before it was Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. It was the Department of Geophysics and Astronomy. And I'm actually pretty proud of the master's work we did. So that's a, that's a starting point. Um, I studied um, glaciers in the Yukon using new instrumentation that I built myself. And we've heard about ground penetrating radar a lot in the news in the last little while. Um, and, and I completed a device specifically, a, a ground penetrating radar instrument specifically for studying glaciers at a time in the early eighties when radar was just beginning to become a useful tool to glaciologists. Now it's a standard um, uh, procedure uh, for everything from uh, Antarctic ice sheet thickness to uh, layers in Greenland's ice cap uh, to uh, tracking the decline of mountain glaciers in the Rockies and Alaska. It's a tool used everywhere. And I was fortunate to get in on the ground floor and start developing ways of doing that. And so in a way, I'm pretty proud of that. Much more recently, um, I spent time half as a research assistant with uh, one of the geophysics groups in the department and half as a teacher um, running the geophysics courses as well as some of the first year courses. 
I'm pretty proud of the materials I generated with the research group um, that were educationally oriented, but essentially we wrote two textbooks, which were never published, but are in the open source domain. One on applied geophysics, which means tools and techniques for studying underground without touching it. GPR is just one of those techniques, uh, but the mineral exploration industry and geotechnical people use a whole suite of tools and techniques for measuring um, and determining what's underground before they actually dig. Um, and the retired professor, Doug Oldenburg, uh, ran um, a group that studied, or that developed um, mathematical techniques for converting those measurements into um, a, a, an understanding of the materials that were underground. And I worked with him on a textbook about those techniques, as well as um, on the, the complete range of equipment that's available to engineers and um, explorationists. So I'm pretty proud of that. Um, it's still in use in uh, both of those uh, things are still uh, in, in play. Um, and I think uh, in, in the most recent activity, the most recent, um, uh, well, 13 years, I've focused on the education side and having worked with UBC's Carl Wyman Education, uh, Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative, um, it was very rewarding. Uh, it was a, a high-energy, well-funded group. Um, we uh, established UBC as, as a trendsetter in um, uh, tactics for improving the uh, result of educating in science. And I'm pretty proud to have been essentially the founding um, employee in that group. Um, our good friend, Brett Gilley, was hired two, uh, a month later. And he and I worked together along with colleagues in the department to, um, to really change the way education happens uh, in the earth sciences. One more accomplishment I'm particularly pleased with is the contribution we made um, here in the department and also with geographers and a few others towards generating a complete 22 course curriculum for a new degree program in earth and environmental sciences for the University of Central Asia. This was uh, conducted between 2017 and the end of 2019. The University of Central Asia is an incredible, um, ambitious initiative to introduce um, post-secondary research and teaching capacity into the mountain regions of three nations in Central Asia, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and <clears throat> UBC was selected to generate the program for this uh, degree, and um, I coordinated that project with 11 designers to generate the courses that will be taken, that have been taken um, by students in, uh, in Tajikistan. Uh, the first students who took that program graduated in uh, June 2021, and, and that is a legacy of uh, the experience in our department in education development and, and in um, the production under really interesting international collaborations. So that's a, that's a project I'm pretty proud of. Uh, you mentioned that you um, you wrote a textbook on, on some of the different ways of detecting what's underground, uh, and that radar is just one of them. Um, can you list a few others or a few other examples? Uh, probably the most recognizable for most people is um, are the seismic techniques. Um, the oil industry lives and breathes on seismic reflection 
where they, they um, activate the ground with an explosion or a big heavy thumping device, and they listen for the echoing vibrations. Um, mapping the time it takes for those vibrations to, to return to a sensing device on the ground um, allows you to estimate what the materials are and where the boundaries are. So that's, um, there are two types of seismology. One involves reflecting signals off boundaries underground, and the other is called refraction. Um, and you'll have to go to your uh, Physics 11 course to, um, to brush up on what refraction is. It's, it really involves um, wave energy that gets bent rather than just bounced. Um, so seismic methods are very um, prominent and there are a wide range of them, and they're used in everything from earthquake studies to um, finding um, minerals and other resources, um, to actually characterizing the shape and um, structure of the entire planet. Um, a seismometer was one of the first geophysical tools to be taken to Mars, um, and it's still active on um, one of the more recent, not the most current, but um, one of the more recent uh, landing rovers. And our own Dr. Katherine Johnson uh, is one of the chief scientists on that project. Um, so that's seismology. And then, then there are a, a, a wide range of electrical methods, which involve either essentially attaching a battery to the ground and looking at how the current flows, or using techniques that are kind of, uh, kind of like radio, but much, much lower frequencies in which we generate radio waves and, and then measure the responding radio waves. Um, and then finally, there are the, what we would call passive techniques that don't involve energy that we make, but we can um, map the way the, magnetic, the Earth's magnetic field varies all over the ground, and we can map the way Earth's gravity field varies all over the ground. And both of those techniques uh, have some similarities and differences, but they're both useful, again, at the very small scale. Um, for geotechnical work, for example, you can detect voids in, uh, in, in limestone if you've got Buildings falling into karst formations in Florida, the uh, gravity techniques will find those voids before they actually open up under your feet, <laughs> as an example. Um, and the magnetic methods are used um, all over the world for everything from uh, understanding um, how Earth's magnetic field works, which is part of the fundamental planetary physics, to um, mapping the rocks and the rock types, to understand structures in the ground that will be indicative of mineral resources. That's really cool. Um, I had no idea there, there was so much or, or so many options for peering underneath the earth. Lots and lots. So you've mentioned what you do uh, in the office, but um, I know you've also had some great field work too. And I've heard from our scientists that some of the, the best stories they have are just crazy field stories. Do you have any crazy field stories you'd care to share? Before going crazy, I think that the, uh, for those that enjoy getting out of doors and having good reasons to really think and, and, um, and wrestle with puzzles. Uh, the outdoor environment, um, whether you're an oceanographer on a ship or a glaciologist on an ice cap or, uh, or a geologist um, working through the woods trying to find an outcrop to understand um, how the rocks got to where they are. The, 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 this is the place where you feel alive, where you're using your, 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 your body as a young person, you're energetic. Uh, it, it's it's um, it's not an artificial environment. Um, sure, there are challenges, but if you're into camping and hiking, then um, I think the, the uh, um, one of the realizations that, uh, that made me feel I was in the right place was uh, the first year I was in uh, a glaciology field camp in the summer in the Yukon. 
um, I suddenly realized that I had um, an ice axe in one hand, um, mitts and gloves because it was cool, crampons on my feet, and an oscilloscope in the other hand. And we were wandering across the glacier to install some instruments. And I had to apply my electrical engineering um, knowledge to make that work well. I had to use my uh, climbing wits to really understand uh, what the glacier was like under my feet. Um, and this was uh, just a, such a stimulating place to be. <laughs> it's a good thing you went climbing in Quebec. That's right. You were asking about um, stories. I, I, it, very, very briefly, I think the most amazing... Sorry, what's an oscilloscope? Oh, the oscilloscope being um, the device that measures um, oscillating electrical signals. Uh, it produces the wiggly lines on a little screen. Ah. And, and your audio technician will use it to track down problems in your high... In your high fidelity system um, and the computer engineers will use it to track down where the signals are, are going in the computer and it's a it's, it's an electrical engineering tool that you would see on the bench of a lab but to be carting it across a glacier with an ice axe in one hand and the oscilloscope in the other was just heaven <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i just didn't want to forget that question <laughs> it's a, it, no you do want to be clear and and maybe you can um edit those sorts of questions in to help the help the listener understand what's going on. But please continue with your other story. Getting to remote sites to do uh, to do studies about how glaciers work requires uh, quite a lot of logistics. Um, the glaciers we were working on with Gary Clark, who's an emeritus professor now in our department uh, in um, the Yukon in the Kalani National Park, uh, the glaciers were quite high elevation, 8,000 feet. And bringing the gear in for a month of living uh, in, in tents and um, uh, all the equipment that you need to drill holes in the ice, um, it's quite a large pile and involved probably 12 to 15 helicopter flights of about 45 minutes each. You sling the gear underneath. And by the time you, the helicopter has arrived at the field camp, that he's gained two or 3,000 feet of elevation and is now struggling to stay aloft. And so some of the exciting times have been uh, working with the helicopter pilots to manage these heavy loads and conditions that are quite marginal for the helicopter, but they're such experts and it's such an amazing thing to watch them manage these loads um, in the wilderness. Yeah, I guess as you get higher, the air pressure gets lower and it's harder for the helicopter to keep helicoptering. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it loses lift at the higher elevations. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, that makes total sense. I'm curious. It sounds like you do some really interesting things, but what's your favorite part of your work? Um, well, so my work now is um, really about trying to enable um, the instructors in our department to um, make use of not just technology, but technology and pedagogic techniques, uh, practices that cause students to learn more efficiently or, or become more inspired to learn. Um, and my favorite part of really that complex sort of pattern of, of tasks um, really is, continues to be building um, either materials or, 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 or workflows or strategies. Really, I was right way back when I was 18 years old. I was right to take an engineering program. I love building stuff. Um, but in a job like this, the building doesn't necessarily have to be um, machines or electronics on a bench. We're building assignments or we're building assessments. 
where we're working the instructor to, to try and figure out what is it that the students don't know? What do they need to, uh, what do they need to know and what skills do they need to practice? And then how do I build something which will help them get the practice they need to get good at it? Um, and then at the end of the course, we need to measure whether they're good at it or not. And again, we need either a thing or a strategy or a technique to carry out that measurement. So I'm sounding like an electrical engineer because in a way that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to measure the thing that we're, we're building, which is knowledge, knowledge in a person. So uh, the thing I like the most is, is the, 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 the parts that involve building new, uh, either things or, or techniques, strategies. And of course, uh, this past year with COVID and everything going online, um, you had to completely rethink all of um, all that education and, and evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the question is, how on earth can you tell whether a, a student has mastered the skill we're wanting them, whether it's how to solve a differential equation or whether it's how to interpret the geological map in terms of the ground underneath, whatever the challenges that students are trying to get good at, uh, how on earth can you measure it when you can't even uh, talk to them properly? <laughs> so the online game. And so the entire geoscience teaching and learning community um, has really been working very hard over the last year and a half to, um, to wrestle with those types of problems, um, make progress where they can. Um, yeah, it's been uh, inspiring to watch the pace at which people can pivot um, on, under under circumstances, it's it's also pretty exhausting for the instructors who are working with deadlines. Um, so it's been it's been challenging. But but um, my guess is that moving forward from from now, which is the middle of the summer of 2021, the teaching and learning of geosciences will look quite different moving forward if compared to what it was like uh, a year to two to five to ten years ago, because we've learned so much what what we can do remotely. Speaking of which, how or do you have any advice on how to teach something as physical as uh, geosciences, where you can't actually hand out uh, rocks and get students to get the feel of um, individual rocks? Well, I think many people would argue that you act, there is no substitute for a student standing on a mountaintop, um, banging away at a rock and trying to understand what's, what's going on there. Um, you, you can't provide the context um, that that setting provides, and the experts use the setting as a as a part of the way they think about the thing they're looking at. So it's there are aspects I think that we will never be able to purely replace. Um, as a substitute, um, for example, what, what we have done in some courses is instead of having students go out and collect the information they need, we've provided information and ask them to do the analysis and to write up uh, their understanding based on an analysis. Uh, I and most people feel that's incomplete, but unavoidable under these circumstances. Uh, the, the job is to work as hard as we can to come as close as possible to, to the optimal. And of course, with very large classes, there are uh, subjects where we'll never get the student out into the field. Um, so, we're beginning to uh, find that quite a lot of communities, teaching communities around the world, are producing virtual, um, virtual um, simulations or uh, virtual versions of, uh, of, shall we say, field trips. 
And we, we did one, for example, that is in the Pacific Museum of Earth's hazards area, which involves using Google Earth to explore some specific sites between Vancouver and up beyond Whistler. So that's an example of the kind of virtual resource. Again, it's not a substitute for the real thing, but it's an attempt to go get closer to real than we were before. Absolutely. And it's been, um, yeah, it's been interesting to watch and learn uh, from you and everyone else in the department. So we talked about your favorite part of your job. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your job? <laughs> Working in a large institution like UBC uh, is is truly a rewarding and um, 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 re really feel fortunate to be in that position because it's a world-class institution and there are, the people are incredible. But it is a bureaucratic institution, as are they all. And so coming to grips with the bureaucracy um, and the time it takes to um, contribute to managing, for example, one of my jobs in the department is to schedule the courses, all the courses that we teach, 150 courses, and to get them um, into the right place, enough seats for the students and play that, uh, play that sort of Rubik's Cube problem of, of scheduling the courses in a way that students can take the ones they want, there aren't too, there's no conflicts, they get the right sequencing. Um, so the bureaucracy and the, and the um, you know, the detail involved is very time consuming and we rely on smart people like Ian Ayers, who's a staff person in our, in our front office to help with that. Um, so dealing with the bureaucracy, dealing with the, um, the overhead of working in a large institution is uh, something you have to get used to and it's not something I totally enjoy. And then to be slightly flippant, um, <laughs> the other thing I find challenging, but it's because I have to work on it, uh, as an engineer, I like things better than people. And so I have to work hard to, to try and build um, uh, productive team uh, uh, collaborations. Um, and again, I find that difficult. Other people find uh, get joy out of it. I, I find it can be quite stressful. Um, and it's very good because nobody works alone. So I find that, um, I find that uh, interesting and challenging. Uh, sounds like uh, we should have, yeah, had you in in the collections, uh, doing collections work, because that's... <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you took on a few projects tidying up the collections, and that was very appreciated. <laughs> right. Nice to get behind a closed door once in a while. Uh, I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? Um, and if so, do you feel like that's impacted your career or, or your studies? Um, it, it's it's a useful question. Um, in my case, I have to say that I'm a privileged white Anglo, well-educated individual, um, and, and uh, it's important to to remember that at every every stage and every step of the way. There's uh, there are so many ways in which um, not having one or more of those uh, privileged components to my background would make the things I do more challenging. Um, and there are people that I work with every day who, who have got to where they are uh, with much more challenging backgrounds than me. Uh, so I think, uh, no, I, have, I, I don't identify in any of those. Uh, and all I can do is slay, say with slight embarrassment that I'm you know, highly privileged and, and have to keep that in mind. No, no that's uh, an honest answer. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, if anyone's listening to you right now and um, they want to follow in your footsteps, uh, what background or courses uh, or experience would you recommend they they take? I, I think I would probably answer this for for anyone, whether they were wanting to follow in my shoes or not. Um, 
it it it's a, it's a message which is um, passed on to students all the time, and it's difficult to kind of internalize as as a beginner, as as someone just starting off on the pathway. Um, but I think you have to have enough courage to 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 take on the courses or the subjects which which um, which you find uh, are are motivating. Uh, we, we know as educators that learning doesn't happen unless you're motivated. It's very difficult to learn something you don't want to learn. Um, and everyone has to, of course. Uh, as an engineer early on, I wanted to make stuff. You know, I wanted to build the world's best stereo or the world's coolest uh, computer peripheral or whatever it might have been at the time. But I had to study the, 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 the math. I had to figure out what an ordinary differential equation was and how to use it. Um, the... Um, uh, the modern physics I found challenging and didn't really want to learn it, but I had to. So uh, what to do to, 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 to move along, do something that um, has enough that you don't have to struggle to put the work in. <laughs> uh, and nowadays the, the, the disciplines are so cross-coupled um, that if I was to take an earth science degree and end up in computing um company somewhere that would be completely uh, ordinary and expected if, if I had taken a computer science degree or an electrical engineering degree and find myself um, working on a ship uh, um, or, or working in a um, an engineering firm solving uh, hazards uh, landslide hazard problems in in, um, in in our mountainous region that's an entirely reasonable pathway what what ends up happening is that you, you, you don't end up in the same place that you began but everything contributes to where you end up, um, so do what you like, and and then you can take those uh, with you and pick the options that appear when when you're in a position to take advantage of them. Have fun and embrace the chaos. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's not and it's and it's chaos in the sense that um, the opportunities emerge um, when you're ready for them to take advantage of them. Uh, aren't opportunities that you can predict. I mean, I can't tell you now what opportunity will be available to a graduate two years from now, and nor can that graduate. And it depends on what companies out there, it depends on what profs they've met, what they've done for uh, for their summer jobs or for their summer activity. You, you can't tell. Well, it's funny. Um, that's actually my, my next question. Um, I find uh, so many fields are changing so quickly, and the field that a person enters um, by the time they retire, it's a completely different field, like you you were saying. Um, so what predictions, um, whether they turn out to be true or not, uh, but what's your best guess as to where the geosciences are going in the future? And what advice would you have for young people to anticipate those changes? Well, I, I think short term in a sense. Um, but what we do see is that we're in the middle of a very rapid change, what I would call a kind of in the midst of, of an exponential shift from occupations which are to a large extent observational in which you, you, you actually have to get out in the field, see what's happening, um, make some back of the envelope calculations, make recommendations to your boss or, what, or, or the team that you're working with. Um, looking into the future, a lot of the decisions are going to be much more data-driven. They're going to be driven by large quantities of data that, that have been gathered in a wide variety of ways from satellites to drones um, to instruments uh, that are autom automated um, to even um, uh, a citizen science collected um, um, information. E just as one bizarre example, it's not so much geoscience, but um, uh, uh, botanists and ornithologists are suddenly discovering that instead of studying birds, in order to be able to 
pursue their science, they actually have to become computer scientists because the data that's being gathered across the world by amateurs is being uh, made available for the experts to make use in order to continue their studies. And so moving forward, um, gaining some familiarity with uh, the way data science works is, is really the next must have on any degree whatever it may be, whether it's chemistry, physics, biology, geology, what have you. Yeah, no one can possibly uh, process all that data on their own. Not, not only can they not process it on their own, but they need to be aware on, and, and have had a little bit of practice um, to get a handle on what might be involved and, and, and how to go looking for it and you know, how, to, how to think about it in terms of its quality and its uh, appropriateness. And I'm thinking of a project I'm working on right now based on a discussion I had with people three hours ago uh, involving data we're trying to collect to introduce um, uh, an exercise toward the end of a, uh, um, a course for scientists in the third year. And finding that data requires a bit of skill to uh, know where to look, to make some, um, some decisions about whether there's quality, whether there are outliers, whether there are problems with it, and then to, to wrangle that information into a form where it's usable by the end user. And the end user, in our case, are students taking a course needing an exercise, but the end user might be your boss in an engineering firm. It might be colleagues in a research group. It might even be um, decision makers in a municipal or provincial or federal government who need to, um, uh, we hear our federal government these days talking about data-driven um, and follow the science and all that's that's what we're talking about if you haven't got that uh, a little bit of experience in that during your undergrad um, you'll find yourself with a deficit so every opportunity of data science or computing course is worth doing i'd go even uh, further and say it's also important to understand how to communicate the um the importance of that data well so that means working in teams working in groups um, not working alone and i think the education system now has is, is moving quite um, has made quite significant progress towards um, really ensuring that the learning environment in any one course doesn't allow a student to um, um, experience that course from start to finish entirely alone. Uh, it, used, it used to be that you could do that and lots of people liked it, but nowadays you're being forced to work in teams and groups um, to produce a product that's not your own but is part, uh, but is where you've contributed to, to to a larger whole. Um, we're still learning how best to do that in the educational setting, but that, as you say, is part of the communication, and, and that's where you gain those capabilities. Speaking of students, um, do you work with students, or do you have any students, and what do you look for when you're recruiting them? It, it, with the people I work with, we use undergraduate students in, um, in uh, um, part-time work uh, settings. Um, we have anywhere from one to four or five students at a time um, working for us, and um, they may be second, third, or fourth year students. Um, we have some grad students as well. What do we look for? Um, we're looking for that rather um, challenging balance between um, confidence and capabilities and um, a, a sense of sort of um, a, a kind of a humble sense of um, I've, I've got a lot to learn and I'm eager to put the time and energy in. And it's, it's, it's hard to judge without, uh, in, in, you know, without interviewing and talking to people for 20, 30 minutes. Obviously, we'd like them to be 
capable of learning um, in a classroom quickly, but we're not necessarily interested in top grades. What we want is, is, is people who are competent uh, and, and also um, eager to, um, to find the connections between the various pieces of the puzzle and to work on any one of those pieces that makes sense. It might be documentation at one end of the project, or, or it might be um, background research at the other end of the project, right? So, so we've got the end of the project involves documenting things and um, summarizing or providing in the needed information for people taking on the project later. The beginning, we may not know where to begin and we may need to do background research. Um, so if we hire a computer programmer, um, we obviously want them to be able to code, uh, write code in a competent way, but we're also keen uh, to see that they'll be eager to put a little time in to do perhaps the background research at the front end and find out what precedent there might be. You don't want to reinvent the wheel, you, you should go and find out who's doing what. And at the other end of the scale, uh, you've got some code that works, now let's package it uh, and put the time and energy that's needed to make sure that the next person can pick it up efficiently and not have to start from scratch. So we're looking for students who, who, are, um, who are versatile uh, in some respects, but are also eager to uh, engage in uh, you know, any aspect of a project. That sounds like a bit of a, a tall order, but I, I know that you uh, reciprocate too, because you look, look out for your students and you treat them uh, really well as well. Well, yeah, I mean, the, one of the differences between undergrads and grads um, is the extent to which supervision or, or um, uh, keeping an eye and, and, and remaining accessible uh, is. Uh, grad students are expected to be a little more self-propelled and the undergrads can be actually quite very, can, can, can be very much sort of beginners um, at just doing work. <laughs> uh, they have become pretty expert at learning and succeeding on exams. Um, but um, I need to go to the student, for example, uh, I may need to go to a student after um, they've done some work and say, this is, this is an excellent uh, uh, beginning. And what it has shown us is that this is not the way it should be done. Um, for this reason and that reason, we need to go some, perhaps check on the quality of the original data a bit more carefully. Um, and in the end, we may throw out that work, but we couldn't have got here without it. Um, some students will object and saying that the work was fine. And I'll say, well, that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point was to get the product to be fine, the end result. And it takes uh, several steps to get there. Yeah, they, they require a little more, more mentoring. Uh, speaking of which, I'm curious, when you were uh, just getting started out, did you f have any mentors or anyone who was an inspiration? For sure. Um, and uh, I don't need to go into too much detail. A very early mentor was neither a teacher nor, nor a boss, but um, I guess you could say a friend of the family who was interested in the things I was and took me on to do some work for him just as a, just as a hobbyist. Uh, and um, it was in a field that um, wasn't really visible in our family. And so I got, um, I got mentoring from, from someone outside who saw I was keen on the sort of the electrical engineering of, of, of things. And, and my dad, who was a doctor and, uh, and a professor in physiology, didn't have a foggiest notion. Uh, so you can, find, you can find mentors in, in, in interesting different places. As a student, um, I, I think that um, most students who end up doing a graduate degree of any kind, a master's or a PhD or both, will find that their supervisor is probably the most influential supervisor, uh, most influential mentor 
they will ever have. Um, it might be a great experience, it might not be, but um, for me, my glaciology supervisor um, really was inspiring, was supportive, uh, went beyond the call of duty in many respects, um, uh, sort of managed the personality issues amongst his, his team when they were out in the field and out of touch from, uh, from civilization for a month or six weeks at a time. Um, all, you know, very inspiring capabilities. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I think of the way he would have handled situations even today. I think, you know, wait a minute, Gary would have done it that way or something. <laughs> and, and so, yes, uh, a grad student's supervisor is probably the most influential mentor that I'll ever have. That's great. And that's quite the testament uh, that even now you still look back to them. And... and in fact, I think one of the best reasons to do a graduate degree is to discover a mentor of that kind. I'm going to get you to look at the other end of your career now. Um, when you do retire, um, if you ever re retire, uh, what would you like to be your legacy? Ah, the legacy. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I've said earlier in this interview that personally, the things that make me really um, put my nose to the grindstone and forget the world around me are situations when I'm actually making something, building something. Um, I'm less interested in, in establishing the perfect team. I'm more interested in, in, in building something that is useful and um, perhaps sets a standard uh, which can be built upon. Uh, so, for example, the early work I did in ground penetrating radar for glacier work, um, I mentioned it as being rewarding. Um, it's, it's a legacy in the sense that they're not still using that piece of hardware, which is now 50 years old. But <laughs> um, the ideas that went into trying to make it work well have, uh, have permeated the subject, right? Permeated this, this, the discipline. Um, I think the same goes for what I'm doing today in this, you know, in, the, in these, uh, in, in, in the decade that is five years before and five years after now. Um, if, if instructing is using the strategies, tactics, um, material resources, but, but also um, teaching um, methods and attitudes that an instructor takes, um, which we've helped to have established in our team um, uh, at, uh, at UBC in the Department of Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric Sciences, then that, that's a legacy which may not have a name attached to it, um, but it represents um, if, if someone was to, in 50 years' time, was to go back and do a PhD on the evolution of geoscience education, um, they would be able to mark our department, our institution, as a trendsetter, um, as, as, a, as a setter of standards, uh, as, as a recognizable um, milestone in the improvement of the way geoscience education is carried out and the way students learn about how the Earth works. Kind of, yeah. You'd like to be able to imagine yourself mentioned um, in a history of the of the discipline or the subject, and say that was that was a that was a milestone, and those were the people involved. Well, Francis, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed, or you want to say before I let you go? Um, no, uh, I think one one aspect which is pretty evident by the interview here. Um, that's that's interesting is that I've been able to spend most of my professional life in an academic setting without being a fully qualified academic. 
In other words, I don't have a PhD, um, but the rewards of working in an academic setting have been tremendous. Uh, it's not the highest paying place. I mean, as an engineer, I could probably be doing quite well at this, at my age, um, in a supervisory role in some big company, you know, building cool things somewhere. Uh, but, be, but working with students, working on a campus, working with um, professors who are, who are thinking on the cutting edge uh, of all kinds of uh, domains uh, is, is in itself very rewarding. And the opportunities for someone with, with the shortcomings that I have, in other words, without having pursued that academic path to its normal conclusion, which is to do a PhD and then a postdoc, and then to contemplate looking for a professorship um, those opportunities are there, um, and you've interviewed Brett Gilley. He's another good example of someone who's doing very well in this setting without a PhD. Um, and there are places for people who aren't prepared to take on the responsibility of a professor uh, to enjoy the benefits of working in an academic setting. Um, you might actually relate to this to some extent, in the sense that... <laughs> Uh, I don't have a geoscience background. No, but uh, and, and also, but you but you get to work in a setting which is uh, academic in in uh, in, uh, in purpose. We're on a Canadian public institution, the top tier research and teaching organization, uh, and uh, there are uh, rewards to to that, um, which supersede any of the uh, you know the other sort of normal will be in reasons for, you know, looking for riches. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, yeah, I'm very much in a similar boat, not having a science background, uh, yet being surrounded by scientists all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, um, like we said before, the uh, options emerge um, and your best opportunity to take advantage of them um, will occur when you've uh, put the time and energy in because you were excited about what you're doing. It's not always possible. I, I know that. Um, but I've been fortunate to be able to take that pathway. Well, Francis, thanks again. It's been an inspiration as always. And have a great day. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.